Welcome to the New Models Podcast. On this episode, we speak with Tom Betridge, the editor-in-chief of High Snobiety. We recorded and edited this episode before the murder of George Floyd and the ensuing unrest. There's no question our thoughts continue to focus on the political now, but after a few weeks' delay, we decided to move forward with publishing this timely conversation about the content and fashion production industry, which much of our audience works either in or adjacent to. This episode is brought to you in part by the Kunsthalle Zurich, which is once again open now with its summer exhibition, Sommer des Zorgens, or in English, Summer of Suspense. The show is curated by Daniel Bauman and Matthew Hansen, and it includes the work of 42 Zurich artists. The idea is to have a series of openings or non-openings, which will happen every Tuesday, Thursday, and Saturday through July 11th. The entire show is on view through August 30th. If you find yourself in Zurich, definitely check it out. Kunsthalle Zurich has a history of really interesting programming. Prior to this exhibition, this spring, they had a Gilbert and George show on. Uh, they showed the work of Peter Veckler last year, Ida Ekblad. The big Heiji Shin Kanye West show was at the Kunsthalle Zurich. So they're a great institution to have on your radar in any case. But if you want to get a better idea of what's going on in the Zurich scene, definitely check it out this summer. You can find out more at kunsthallezurich.ch or hit the Kunsthalle Zurich button on the New Models homepage, newmodels.io. Now for our conversation with Tom Betridge. Let's get into it. Yeah, so I spend my morning, I do about like 11 to 12 Zoom calls uh, while the European office is awake. And then I spend the afternoons like writing and hanging out, doing podcasts. Doing podcasts. Yeah. yeah, very cool. So we're speaking today with Tom Betridge. He's calling us from New York. Tom is the editor-in-chief of High Snobiety, where he's launched a new iteration of the High Snobiety magazine called High Style. Previously, Tom served as the executive editor of Interview Magazine after its relaunch in the fall of 2018. He was, before that, the executive editor of O32C, overseeing the publication's big site relaunch and acting as managing editor for the creation of the Essence editorial platform. Also, in collaboration with Richard Turley, Tom is responsible for the not-closed Barney's campaign during the department store's last moments this past fall. So his experience uh, is wide-ranging. If there are one linking key, it, you seem to be like a very good like caregiver, palliative caregiver or doula of, of brands in some, <laughs> in some capacity. Um, you, you know, it's funny when you were at O32C, you, just as you were leaving uh, December of 2018, you published the big flat now. And although that's a couple years old, I mean, it feels so prescient. So maybe as like a point of departure, we could just set the scene. Yeah. I mean, so the whole big flat now thing, we, we published it at the end of my time at O32C and it was almost like a FAQ for all these questions we had gotten because we had been producing a magazine, we had been producing merchandise, we had been consulting for brands, and we would always get these kind of like eyes wide open questions about 
how you can do all these things at once. And so in a way, we kind of wanted to just answer that question for anyone who had it. Um, because I feel like for us and, and like one of the central theses of the big flat now is that, you know, content is essentially this like big blob that inhales everything in the world, you know? So like merchandise is a type of content, actual media is a type of content, artwork is a type of content. And so in a way, the big flat now is a way of talking about the fact that the form something is, or even when it happened is kind of irrelevant now, you know, because I think as far as Google Images is concerned, yesterday and like 1995 are the same thing, you know, and as far as Instagram's concerned, like a sculpture in the Louvre and like a t-shirt you made is like the same thing, you know? And so it was like this way of kind of like flattening everything on every single axis. And yeah, I mean, I feel like today when we're all just, everything is a Zoom call, it, it kind of feels <laughs> taken on a new and weird relevance, I guess. Yeah, totally. I mean, you speak about like nowness and flatness as these two qualities. And in this Corona time, we're in this eternal present, right? But I don't know. I mean, we saw this change coming. There was like a change in media. There was a change in the art world. There was a change in fashion. And they all kind of converged during your time at O32C. So I wonder maybe like how for you has that prophecy become more true or how is it mutated into something that's stranger or that has other dimensions? I don't know. I feel like it's almost like it just keeps like leaking further and further out. I think what was strange was the way it was before we wrote it. Like I think when I arrived at O32C in 2014, you know, they had just done this cover with Rihanna um, and there was almost a backlash amongst their readership where they were like, how could you have Rihanna on the cover of your magazine? Like this is the magazine where I go to see someone who isn't Rihanna on the cover. And <laughs> idea that like, avant-gardeness and popularity were mutually exclusive. And I think like, especially in the art world, you know, I studied art criticism at Columbia University where there's this really old school idea of criticality or like this idea, this like kind of like 70s idea that if you have anything to do with commerce, you're like tainted. And so I think I, I see myself more like a parasite, like with this whole doula metaphor, which I love. I think I almost have always seen myself as the one like crawling up into the womb and like using <laughs> businesses and the fashion industry itself as a way to like survive and just make things in a context that can actually pay for that. It's kind of ironic that after Rihanna on the cover of O32C in 2014, two years later, there was a what like three story high cardboard cutout of her in Kunstwerke. Uh, yeah, in, in this <laughs> I mean, magazine, Berlin, Berlin Biennale. Biennale. Yeah, I mean, you saw such a backlash that Biennale is like, you know, it's like as though celebrity is somehow offensive in, in <laughs> some contexts. And it was funny because even a year after that, we had Kim Kardashian in like our cover story and everyone loved it, you know? And so it was like, it felt like a real kind of like change of the mentality about what those things meant. When, when I was reading the, the Big Flat, now I just read it earlier today, I, I had this kind of feeling, and it's just a vague feeling. I was like, this somehow reads like Francis Fukuyama claiming the end of history. So like, is there a way to get out of like, I mean, it, like you defined it so well that maybe that just means that, it's, that we're at the peak of flatness and nowness and we can already kind of see less flatness in the sense that like, I mean, there's extreme differences in different areas that you're in right now. Your experience in one place is not flat globally, basically, in the same way that it was, I think, two years ago in a way that it seemed like that would never end. So I just wonder like, yeah, wh wh what are the ways out? What are the ways out of the flatness? 
I think, you know, it's a really good question. I feel like the, the critiques I enjoyed the most of the Big Flat now was people who said that this was like a dystopian, like neoliberal tract on <laughs> how we live in like a, like a sort of like infinite scroll of just like commerce and content and culture. And I think that the Big Flat now, it's a conversation that exists like within capitalism. There's nothing less equal about our economy, even though our culture has somehow been flattened and become super, super equal. That's, there's a kind of weird irony to it. And, and when we published the text, we, we actually asked Jack Self, um, who's an amazing critic who I admire a lot, to almost like troll the, the text we made within the, our own magazine. In his text, he talks a lot about this kind of irony that in a way, so much equality is happening within how the culture industry operates, but that flattening is almost the exact opposite in civil society. I think we need to maybe like distinguish between flattening and equalization because I don't think it's exactly the same thing, but we're talking about it the same way. And I also yeah. think like the flattening, I mean, I read it as a little bit of a dystopian text. I have to say that was my first impression. I was like, is this an endorsement or just a description? Because it seemed a little bit like a celebration of it. But I mean, this is like very classic new models complaint of talking about the flattening of interfaces and media. And like, I do think that's something to be mourned. The flattening, though, of the online space kind of reminds me of another favorite new, new models topic, which is scope neglect or scope insensitivity. It kind of operates in the way that like in our cognition, we flatten scope into a sort of homogenous layer that we can understand so that we aren't a hundred times as sad when uh, we hear about a disaster where a thousand people die as opposed to 10 people die. Like uh, everything kind of in our mind becomes flattened into this sort of uniform scope of abstracted concepts that we're able to handle and make analogies with, etc. And I feel like the big flat now in terms of media, it's kind of doing the same thing. It's reducing the biggest celebrity to the same, you know, thousand by thousand pixel frame as um, a SoundCloud rapper with 20 followers who took the photo on a flip phone. Also, we were talking like on a, the Topsoil podcast, you we were talking about the becoming middle class of celebrities. And I wonder how you think that the big flat now has changed celebrity and what their strategy is for sustained growth or just like sustained mental health. For the big flat now, it's like the, the main tool, but also the place where it takes place is the iPhone, you know? And so it's almost like that tool it flattens production and media together because it's this thing that you can use to make images, but it's also this thing where you like inhale all of your images. And so in the context of celebrity, it's like, you know, you grapple with that question of what does it mean to be famous if everyone can broadcast themselves or what is it like, or even the fact that you can basically rate people on a singular scale of follower count to like compare someone who's maybe like, Olympic athlete and someone who does like skincare reviews, like on the same sliding scale, I think that's the type of flatness that we were trying to talk about as well. I mean, one thing that is, and I'm sure this probably comes up a, maybe later in this conversation, but one thing that does cause a difference is like the narratives ascribed to a certain celebrity. Like if you, if there's a lot of stories about the person that you are aware of, as opposed to just volume of images that you just happen to see. I feel like that's where actually the depth or the sort of gravitas of celebrity can still exist. You know, mm -hmm. it's almost like 
is there long form content mm-hmm. about related to this celebrity? You know, I think TMZ is still, I think, really important in creating celebrity and why TMZ doesn't really cover what's happening to a makeup reviewer who with you know, 5 million followers. There's there's no narrative there. There's no narrative weight, right? Mm-hmm. Whereas Kardashian, like Kim Kardashian, like broke on the scene with a sex tape and with like all of this media, with long form media constantly written about her. Yeah. Right? With different, uh, with traditional media too, television, reality shows being behind her. So I think narrative still acts as a source of gravitas and celebrity. Um, I mean, it's interesting because I, I like an interview when we were working on it. Celebrity is kind of the, the entire subject matter of interview in a way. It's like about celebrity without any other meaning almost like celebrity minus meaning. And I think it was really hard to know what a celebrity was right now. Like there's no like share of 2020. You know? So we were constantly kind of grappling with that because then you get into these weird spinning spirals where you're like, oh, is the kid who's going to be in the new Aladdin movie, like, is that person a celebrity? But actually no one online knows him, but, or is XXX Tentacion a celebrity? But like, no, he's really problematic, but has so much more influence than people who are actually in movies. And so like, there was almost kind of all these different factors. And I think a big part of what made someone feel like a celebrity in the traditional sense was almost this kind of like medieval affiliation with the actual film industry, you know, mm-hmm. and like this kind of, and even though the film industry I think has been less relevant than ever, it seemed that they still had kind of people who they had decided to make famous within the, you know, like to be the person who will star in a Marvel movie in 2030, you know, who's someone that no 14 year old, 14 year old has actually ever heard of before. Right. So it's almost <laughs> celebrity minus following <laughs> kind of like conundrum. And so I think it's almost, it's never been harder to track or even, you know, compare than ever. I, I think like the screen size still matters though. I mean, even if it's a flattening, like you're on the movie screen, it's a little bit bigger than your TV. And if you're on, I mean, I think there is still this hierarchy of screens, which that's maybe that's still some, it feels very, very anachronistic, but definitely is what you're describing. Like Timothee Chalamet, He's a celebrity, no question, right? But like, that's because he came from the most conventional track, which is, a, yeah, I don't know. Are there any influencers that have crossed over? Do you know of any like YouTubers that have become proper? I know that I'm forgetting her name and it's so embarrassing, but there's that woman who has a Lily Singh. I think that's her name. Oh, I don't, I don't know. know. Okay. So yeah, so she's like, the. I think she's actually interestingly like the first female late night host, which is also kind of baffling. Um, but she's... <laughs> started out as like a YouTuber, basically. Mm. It's interesting that that also feels transgressive. They're like, oh, wow, we're putting someone from YouTube on TV. Like, right. like I think it's interesting that that feels like such a, a moment because it seems kind of reasonable that, you know, you would just capitalize on the following that YouTube has to like make TV relevant. But I guess the age group of people, I mean, if you look at the average numbers of people who watch TV, it's like insane like in the 60s in average ages versus Oh yeah. Right. I mean you know cuz when you watch if you're like with your family and you watch TV it's like all meds or like insurance health insurance <laughs> like the ads quite clearly tell you who who they think is tuning in. Well you can imagine a sad David Letterman like hanging up his tie and lighting a cigar and being like it's the end of an era. <laughs> like uh, Lily Singh or whoever it is, yeah, the first right. YouTuber getting into late night. Yeah, yeah, and so it was always interesting because that interview, we'd be like, okay, what would Andy Warhol want to 
put on the cover right, right now. And it's always like, is it Lily Singh, who's actually on TV, who none of us have ever heard of, and I can't remember her name? You know, is it 6 9 right. <laughs> Is it someone on OnlyFans who no one's ever heard of, but like we're horny about? You know, and so it was like, it, it actually kind of put this weird prism over the world because it was actually like very difficult to figure that out. Does Lily Singh at least have a band? Like a live band? I'm not sure. I've never... <laughs> no, she has like AI has a show. <laughs> I mean, but worth worth noting though that the most famous and most powerful person in the world is a TV star. So there's still TV is still oh, like central Donald to our culture, Trump. whether we like it or not. Right. Trump, I'm talking, yeah. of course, you know. Oh, I think you know Kim Kardashian. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> they're on a similar True. similar stature. I mean, I'm curious, like from an editorial point of view. I mean, when you're editing art magazines, I mean, it's always subjective, right? But I remember entering into the art forum zone in 2008, and it was pretty clear what the landscape was when you were drawing from the outside to like add more dimension, or you were drawing from the mainframe. But like, I can't even imagine what the editorial meetings would be like at interview or even now with high style, which is gorgeous. Um, oh, like you. how you can go about drawing up names. Is it just as it always has been? Everyone sits down and they're like, who's on our mind? And if there's enough name recognition, you then pursue further. Or is there a lot more active discovery going on? A lot more like lurking Instagrams of people that are interesting. Or maybe at this point, you know, you've got your head full of so many things that you just have really good people that you're working with and you trust their opinions. But What's that process now? So after all the confusion I was talking about earlier, I feel like essentially the answer I came up with for myself to help me think about these things is that in a way, celebrities act as kind of emojis for how we feel inside. You know, like you take someone like Lizzo and like, she's just basically like immediate symbol of like, I'm living my best life, like amazing. You know, like I'm having fun or even someone like Takashi 69 who's like, you know, clearly a terrible person. But like when you see him, you're like, that person's lit. Like I feel lit, you know, and you're kind of like, and I, I think that in a way, like for example, with the Migos, when we did high style, it was like, we wanted to create a men's magazine about how, how the feeling of being like lost inside of like product lust and just, <laughs> and just like being absorbed in like wanting stuff and looking cool and stuff. And I feel like no one else kind of captured that feeling like they did. And so I think that that's, that's sort of how I've come to think of, of celebrities in the context of editorial at least. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah. I mean, when you look at like Cardi's Instagram, you see Offset there just like with a thousand like new shoes. You're like, you are, you are, you live inside of like consumer land. It's almost like humorous because then you have someone like Billie Eilish and it's like, she's like, oh, this is the bummed out part of me. You know, so it's like, <laughs> I like Billie Eilish because she represents the bummed out part of me. And then, and then Cardi B represents the confident, like lit part of me. Right. You know, it's like, right. like a great little like collection of these people. But I was just thinking that I thought like there was a really notable turn in the level of like consumerism that rap is about when they started talking about socks specifically. Like I feel like there's a lot of like Gucci socks. That's like a kind of accessible, that's like a fusion line stuff. Are they getting paid like Bacardi party era? Like what, what's the deal with the socks? Are socks that desirable? Is there a big market for that? Yeah, it's, it's interesting because it's like this, it's this really deep irony because like, you know, even, even on the level of the socks, right? Because it's like socks are like the thing you can afford from a really expensive brand. But then also like you could say that the fact that you even buy expensive socks means how rich you are or whatever. And I think even though rappers kind of drive so much influence in the luxury industry now how they're almost not quite insiders yet or they're they're like sort of semi-insiders you know like you can see travis scott become the 
face of Saint Laurent, or you can see, you know, in Louis Vuitton show, menswear show, it's like every famous rapper is there. But it also doesn't quite feel like there's been a complete integration of that industry yet. You know, there's almost kind of like a skeptical or like a need-based relationship there. So... I kind of do want to pivot to brick and mortar retail being one of the sites of performance where you realize the fantasy of the brand. If we are in the big flat now, wouldn't that site of retail be more exciting than ever? And I mean, beyond the fact that a lot of these brands just like lost the thread at some point and failed to update, why has the retail experience lost its magic? Yeah, it's a good question. I feel like it's almost like a laws of physics problem. Like the rate at which physical things moves is just too slow. <laughs> With retail, it's like, you know, you have to order all the shit that comes in the store like six months in advance. And you have to, you know, I've, I've spoken to a lot of different retailers about the subject of programming. And I think that's like, I think in a lot of ways, that's the kind of answer is that they need to make it so there's different things happening in the store enough so that you want to quote unquote, like refresh the page as someone who goes there. Right. You know, there's, a, there's almost no reason to go to Bergdorf Goodman twice in like one season, you know, unless you forgot to get the right color of a sweater and you want to get like another one. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. It's like that that brick and mortar question, I think is they have to almost make that space feel a little bit more like the internet feels, I guess. I mean, yet like walking around New York, you see all of these kiosk type cookie shops and boxing places and very like social media aware sites in which you can frame your body. And I'm surprised that that same effect didn't happen to retail stores. But I, mean, I think it's also like you look at Amazon as probably like one of the the biggest offenders as far as the flattening effect. Like their retail experience, it's bad by any kind of standards. I mean, I can't imagine shopping fashion stuff on there. It seems like there's such an obvious place to compete there by just like having any type of like retail experience that isn't just imagining that you're the ideal economic consumer and you're going to compare the cost between <laughs> 30 different varieties of the same thing. Maybe some of them are going to be fake. That's on to you. You got to Got to use your own judgment. You know, like there's like, there's no curation whatsoever there. It's like the purest market and the most flat one for that reason. I don't know how you compete with that because I mean, I guess that seems to be what people want. People don't order their clothes off Amazon though. I wonder statistically how much. I mean, I, if I know what I'm looking for, maybe I would look there to compare the price. But sure, it's not like where you're looking for ideas of what to Clothing to shop retail for. online is, and sneaker retail online, is, there's still some really big players. Although I guess Amazon did buy Zappos, right? So while I mean, ago. maybe they know. Yeah. I mean, and they didn't fold it under the, their umbrella. They just power it, right? I mean, the funny thing though about Zappos specifically though is like their shtick was not about expertise about shoes. It was just like customer service being the focus of it. Uh, like I went to the headquarters there. There was no shoes anywhere. It was not part of the culture. It was like a complete afterthought that it happened to be about shoes. Zappos is such a weird sp- anomaly. I don't I don't understand exactly why it exists still. I don't think it's solving the same yeah, problem. Yeah, like are shoes that much different than books? Or, you know, it's like this kind right. of... Yeah, it's so it's, bizarre. It's, and it just feels like they, they bought it and like kept the the founder in some weird silo. I didn't want to give him too much power. I, I don't know. I, I With luxury retail, I feel like, and, and I would think about this a lot at Essence because, you know, I was making content for their brand and I, I always like to imagine what the who the person I'm speaking to is. I would often, when I was there, imagine like, okay, I'm around 29, 30 years old. I work at an ad agency, maybe even in consulting and I want to get, a Yoji Yamamoto thing as a treat 
like delivered to my house in a box because I'm actually never not working during the hours when the store is open. <laughs> and I feel like that, that reality of like almost the erosion of like leisure class is, is also why luxury retail is, is closing is that I think people who can afford that stuff maybe don't even, even have time to go there in person. You know, that, that also could be part of the problem, I think. But I mean, big department stores are closing, right? But I mean, are smaller luxury retail stores closing too? I mean, I always thought of them though, mostly as being supported by whales, right? It's like they stay open all week and maybe like nobody really buys much, but you know, always at some point someone comes in there and spends $200,000 in one go, right? That's always the model I thought existed in that they need to be there to catch whales. Yeah, I mean, I think I think you're probably right. I mean, I don't have the data to back that up, yeah. but I, I'm pretty sure experientially that's true. I also feel like there's not really that many whales in a city like New York anymore. You know, it's yeah. not like, like if you go to Harrods in London or something, you just see like tons of like, people with like these like fuck you Bugattis like parked outside of the store, like probably spending like $200,000 inside or something. And I just don't even know if New York is really even that city anymore. It's almost like a middle management financial services city, you know? Yeah, that's um, interesting. So. That's, that's true. But like back to that question of the site of transformation, where is that happening or is that happening in the magazine and then that's enough? Like where, where is that happening? Or do you think maybe also this is a place to speak about for the past 20 years, young people have been very anti-consumerist and we're now you're proposing that maybe there is a bit of a shift there that they're actually kind of into consuming again. I don't know if those two things overlap, but. Yeah. I mean, I think it's like, there's almost two sides of the coin. It's like, I think that one founding thesis of the work that I do is that I don't think this idea of like kind of advertising the way it's normally been seen is I don't think it even works anymore. And I don't think it's going to exist anymore. Like this idea of creating a billboard image of something, yeah. you know, and I, I think that the future of brands sending messages to people is that they're basically going to be become publishers. And I saw that very early on as an editor where I realized that, you know, in 15 years, it's more likely that I'm going to work for a fashion brand as like their in-house publisher than I am as like editor-in-chief of whatever media company still exists. It's not even about where the society is going, but like how effective things are. Like, I don't think anyone really sees like a Calvin Klein billboard on Houston Street and is like, hmm, like I should buy that, mm -hmm. you know? And even if you can, you it's so hard to measure it. And so I think that people making articles for you is just to become clear that like that's really how you can make messages as a brand in an effective way. I mean, it used to be an ad wasn't enough to create the world. So they create these stores and they'd spend a lot of energy making like a Ralph Lauren store or making Colette or making Dover Street Market or whatever, famously Nike Town, right? And then I guess for the various reasons you've outlined, people stopped needing those sites. And then the place of world building has become a diverse portfolio of general content production across different platforms. And that's how it's established. Yeah, no, and I think, I think especially with larger brands, there's like this baby step, they're still in the baby step phase of that. You know, like there, a lot of people haven't figured out how to have an Instagram account as like a big fashion brand yet. Because it's a different pace. It's like you used to just make two or three campaigns 
a year and then you would like have that one really expensive image kind of say everything and be in a magazine but now it's like you're reacting multiple times a day it's almost too much like being a human it's like doesn't pass the turing test you know like <laughs> like what does goyard have to say five times a day right <laughs> like, like like it's just it's kind of and so i think that that's like a little bit where publishing comes in because it's like i think basically editors are designed to just talk and talk and talk and talk. And right now, are you producing September? The high like series could be high style, high something else. Is that that's biannual or? We are quarterly, um, okay. but because of production, it's going to do the next one in the fall. Right. Instead of publishing one in the summer because there's just too many logistical challenges producing everything. I mean, I was impressed that Art Forum did a really nice May issue. And like, I guess for Art Forum, it's a bit easier. You talk to everybody, all these artists and ask them how they're processing this time. But when it comes to fashion, how do you solve that public sphere problem? And what kind of outfits to make for your like Zoom screen or for your Instagram live? Or like, where does that public sphere, where, where are the outfits being deployed? I feel like everyone, in a way, what we're doing right now is not too dissimilar from the quote-unquote normal world. Yeah, because it's like, how much do people really spend that much time together? You know, and I feel like almost like when you look at like street style outside of fashion shows, it's like that's happening in real life, but it almost exists for being an image. There's a weird irony to it. I think for me, like one of the reasons why I didn't want to kind of like force a magazine this summer is that I didn't want like to make images on iPhones and with like zoom screenshots like there's if, like it just felt like I knew everyone would be doing that and there was something about that felt boring or just like soupy and like not fun that that for me was like the main roadblock right do you have any sense of how retailers are thinking about this or how brands are thinking about their seasons now I wish you know I wish I had more visibility I'm definitely been speaking to a lot of different brands about it. I think it's mainly kind of a wait and see thing. Right. You know, and I think that there's this kind of collective habit everyone's had of doing things the same way, like having a fashion show in a certain way or having like, and you kind of can step back and say to yourself, wait, like, why do I even do that? Like, what is it? Like, do I do a, do I have a fashion show because I want a bunch of famous people to go to one place and like take pictures? <laughs> Maybe we do something else that does that, you know, and you, you kind of are forced to think about what you're actually trying to do rather than the, the actual thing itself. Right. I, it was mostly just to get media images to be like, look at who showed up to, look who's like soft endorsing our brand. What's your I'm, question? I'm trying to... Well, you're, looking I, up a, you're looking up shoes. I've been trying to track <laughs> this down. First of all, I remember, I, I think Balenciaga started these giant... Well, I guess there was like oh, the, the Puma giant chunky sneakers and Balenciaga giant chunky sneakers. Wasn't it Fila? Oh, right. You were at Fila was the like, the, um, I don't know, there's like a Twitter joke of being like, no, nah, girl, you can't stay over, stay in your shoes. <laughs> but I remember there was these, ad- they were heavily advertising on Instagram for a while. These massive sneakers that look kind of like Balenciaga and they were expensive. And then I saw a whole bunch of like bloggers and other people wearing them. But I just realized like there's a fast fashion element and a a sort of like ability with a a certain amount of seed money to just deploy a product and blow it up and then probably just move on. And I mean, I wonder if you see, Tom, if you actually think that brands in themselves could be losing power to just an overall idea or aesthetic that just has to be deployed 
as effectively as possible and with the right amount of attentional currency. I feel, I feel like the thing that doesn't work now is kind of like individual genius. Like if you look at like fashion of, of like yesteryear, it's like, oh, like there's this genius weird guy and he's going to come up with something and that's going to be the thing we all like. But I feel like if you take the big shoe, I feel like the big shoe is a feeling that's out there in the world and then you kind of find it and you capture it. You know, that feeling of like, oh, I'm a 12-year-old wearing like a big dumb skate shoe and I don't give a fuck about anything, but I'm kind of cool because I don't give a fuck about anything. You know, and so you just like go out in the world and you like throw a pokeball at that idea and make it fashion, you know? And so it's like almost kind of like, it's more empirical than it is like some French guy sitting in an atelier, like coming up with the idea, you know, on his own. I think it's like the kind of... Yeah, I mean, it's just brands looking at memes. It's like the Virgil Abloh approach of just, you know, identifying the thing and then putting quotes around it, which is kind of an honest expression of what you're saying, Tom. Like, less than like the genius with his sketch pad and his watercolors making the new hemline or whatever. It's like, or yeah, I guess Dan Wright, like meme, finding the like mimetic core and being like, I'm putting quotes around this because this is the thing that feels like the expression of our moment. Yeah, and I think with like, for example, Virgil and something him and I have discussed as well is like, you know, in a way, like the codes of that brand are designed for like the small screen, you know, like you have like those stripes that are on everything. Like those are, those are industrial markers that are meant to be seen down a highway from like a hundred meters away. And so you, it's like made for iPhones. I mean, same with like a big shoe. It's like, you know, you have like a big fucking shoe. And then when you take a fit pick with it, you can see what shoe it is. You know, it's right. like, almost like, weird, like, it's like, <laughs> like, it's like a, like a screen trick or something, I don't know. Of recent brands, yeah, recent new brands, are you confident in any of them being enduring successes? Or do you think they're these 20th century legacy brands and we're just in an age where things will come and go? I feel like we're almost like on season six of like one particular show and another one's about to happen. <laughs> because in a way you saw over the past like five years, this idea of young generation of practitioners taking over different luxury brands, like from like Jonathan Anderson to Alessandro Michele or Demna at Balenciaga, Virgil Abloh. But that's kind of happened now. And so I think that we're about to figure out what that next thing is. I mean, all of those brands and those people will probably still be around making things. But I think as far as like being a storyteller goes, it's like the story's kind of been told now. Yeah. That makes sense. So last year, spring of 2019, you wrote a piece for Spike Art Magazine titled Dark Arts, Notes on Fashion, Content, and Magic, where you lay out how screens have placed art and fashion on the same plane. In the zone of screen space, an image is just an image. When you penned the piece, you were responding to art and luxury fashion's recent surge in mass appeal, and also the unsustainability of this position, given how these industries are structured. In the years since, we've seen the big A art world atrophy as real world events make art world art seem quaint by comparison. And we've watched fashion, in the form we once knew it, come off the rails a bit too. Before this recording, Alex Grimger, who's a friend of the pod and a longtime art editor, Alex and I were talking about your piece, wondering how, to your mind, the narrative might have evolved since it was published. I'll read a brief quote from the piece for context. What we both felt tired of was not the industry's newfound place in the mainstream, but rather its obvious inability to remain there. Art was not bought by enough people. Furthermore, artists did not produce it fast enough. Its refresh rate was too slow. 
And then you say some other stuff and you go on to say, fashion, a similarly Baroque industry that is enjoying a similarly huge uptick in attention, has a different makeup that predates even the internet. It is readily consumable in a global marketplace, and it has a culture of secondary image making that allows for plugging directly into the larger visual culture. So where, yeah, like what is, do, do you have a trailer for like the next TV show already in your in your mind? No, I mean, I would... I would love to figure it out with smart people like you guys. Um, <laughs> I guess the only thing we can really know is that it will change. Right. You know, and I think that maybe what happens to fashion is that the snowball keeps rolling down the hill and more things get sucked into it. Mm, you know, I think right. that, I don't know. I always just found that with art, it was studying it or being interested in it. I would always just walk around and be like, why is this the thing that's here? Or like who decided that this was here or who's even the audience for this thing? You know, it felt like re- genuinely confusing, you know, whereas like, I think with music, okay, a billion people listen to this on Spotify, like that makes sense. Like that's, that's why it's there. There's something kind of inherently like anti-populist about art, you know, or maybe fashion just is that like art 2.0. Right. Maybe we can pivot to the, the immunized shopper. Is that, can we talk about that? Because I was just talking about predicting the the next season it seems like this is oh and also just to say we're we're talking about high snobiety the immunized shopper a white paper on the post quarantine consumption habits of the new luxury consumer can we give like um, the three questions that you have at the beginning of that deck um will the same things matter to us when we emerge from this thought will the aesthetics and values of our culture change and will we want the same things even when stores open again those were like the that's the immunized shopper what the first thing i noticed of course is that uh covid killed chunky shoes that was that was my first takeaway so another thing i i noticed was that 99% of the user base said that they felt optimistic about the about their personal future which i thought yeah i wonder if we're not immunized yet right i mean yeah, conceptually it's, even it's interesting cuz i think you know we we wanted to almost like make this distinction between being allergic and being immunized right when it comes to fashion there's always going to be allergic people who just think the idea of spending money on clothes is dumb but I think with like this idea of being immunized, it was almost like, oh, like I was susceptible to this kind of branding and now I'm realizing that it's superficial or like I'm, right. I, I still want something nice, but it's like, I'm not, my sort of tolerance has become higher, you know? Cause I feel like what we did hear from people is that they still cared about style and buying stuff. They just didn't want to have like a giant logo on their t-shirt, you know, and, right. and, or like, a big shoe. Um, and it was funny because like this weird thesis we had going into that project was looking at menswear from 2010, 2009, right after that recession. Right. And, you know, if you go to High Snobiety's articles from 2010, like it's like boat shoes and like nothing has a logo on it. And it's like Japanese raw denim and like all this stuff that like has no markings, you know, and you have to think that like five years earlier it was like, Paris Hilton, Murakami bags at Louis Vuitton, like that kind of era of style. And so, I mean, Normcore was 2011, right? When it was coined. And that was obviously, they were describing something that had been a trend for at least four years already. Um, Yeah. But I just feel like, okay, like literally the definition of a recession is two quarters with negative growth. Germany is officially in a recession now. Okay, because it is the second quarter. Anyway, I think there's a good chance that we we are going to see lumberjack clothes. I mean, I would like to see this again in 
six months, eight months next year because there'll be more antibodies. To- I bet the optimism will also change because you have to imagine we did this poll like two weeks in where everyone's like, oh, like I'm doing a yoga class on YouTube now. And like, right. great. But they didn't realize that like... I mean, it's an interesting snapshot because it is from April 16th, I think. So even yeah. now that's the like... pretty did like late March. So it was okay. like two weeks in. Yeah, I mean, with these white papers at High Sobiety, it's... You know, we originally, before this one, we would spend six months on a white paper and it was like a huge project. And now we, we're doing them about once a quarter, even less. You know, I think you need that kind of agility in order to be able to keep up. And so, you know, we started constructing this poll, you know, maybe a week after our office closed with the intent of getting it up in like a couple of weeks. And that, that's also something I think is really freeing about editorial projects in general is that they're so iterative. Like you just write it on the internet and it just can yeah. kind of disappear. And like, you know, you can, you can experiment a lot. But yeah, I'd be curious to even just ask these exact same questions to our audience like tomorrow and see how it's changed. Because I bet. Right. Because I also wonder if people are like, people mentioning like, oh, Uniqlo's making masks. I'm pretty sure like that low, low hanging fruit virtue signaling is not going to cut it pretty soon. And I wonder, like, what what are brands going to actually start doing to really signal some kind of pro-social message? Yeah, I think what I found really interesting about these results and I hadn't expected was that it wasn't like a cool thing that brands had done all this stuff. It was almost like expected. Like, if you didn't do it, you were like the virus. (laughs) Politically incorrect. And I find that so interesting that a young shopper almost expects altruism from the brands that they that they work with because I well, feel like at least the performance not, of it. Yeah. Right. Especially because I feel like I'm almost on that generational cusp where you learn, like I learned about fashion based on watching like sex in the city, you know, yeah. when it's like, was a thing for like unapproachable kind of mean people who were totally unrelatable. <laughs> you know, idea that like, that like the, the company Fendi that made that person's bag should be like making a mask for a doctor. Like I never would have made that connection in my mind like 15 years ago. You came to work at High Snobiety this fall-ish at a time when it was transitioning. And then three months later or six months later or whatever the time frame was, you then have to adjust again to whatever this new economy is going to be. Can you speak a little bit about how you're thinking of a magazine differently and how specifically, like what opportunity you saw in taking High Snobiety from its earlier iteration to what you're driving towards at this point? Yeah, I mean, my thesis going in was that, you know, all these things that the brand had covered before I got there, like sneaker culture, Japanese streetwear, skateboarding, you know, like those were all kind of niche things, like when the site first started. But clearly the site had grown tremendously even before I arrived and then become like a bona fide commercial force in media. And, you know, my thesis, like stepping into that was that all of these ingredients are actually comprised kind of like a new luxury mainstream. You know, like that the person who would have been reading Vanity Fair in the 1990s is like someone who wears like Yeezy shoes now, you know, and and to kind of just almost like step out of the genre of streetwear and almost think of like 
how do we make a publication for like a new kind of shopper or person or like member of this segment of the society in a way. Totally. And then this magazine, which is like bigger than most people's laptops, definitely way bigger than a phone. I forgot the format of this is like, I don't know what the technical format, but it's like the old interview. It's like big and luxurious. And when you look at it, you're looking at products at a scale. That big you, screen. It's like really big screen, but you can also like you flip through and you feel where the print is. And like, it was nice to feel this object that really existed as not screen space. I really hate like coffee table magazines is what I like to call them like this. So for me, it was like the bigness was really important, but also like how cheap the paper is. Right. Was also, like this idea Not that precious. it's huge, but it's also made on like people magazine paper stock almost <laughs> was that to me was like part of the idea. Cause I think, that floppiness creates urgency or indicates that this thing is news. It's not this like precious thing that is in a magazine that comes out once a year and is like too monumental in a and way. You- yeah, like I love how shitty old issues of interview become. Like right. they're like disintegrate, um, which I really I always enjoyed when I was working there, like looking through the archive. Totally. Sorry to maybe to pivot back, but I feel like we we glanced over something that seems really counterintuitive to me that that youth culture has become less anti-consumerist than ever before because like that's just not my understanding anecdotally anyway i mean i think about teen vogue basically just publishing communist op-eds all the time <laughs> and just in ge- like in general the tiktok memes i mean maybe that's a niche and i'm just like hyper aware of that and that's not the mainstream but where's that where's the evidence for that in my opinion i think this idea that being into brands and like being radical is different no longer exists in a credible way. I feel like that's a very Gen X idea that no longer mm. exists. It's like a countercultural teenager of yore like would have never even wanted to look at Teen Vogue because Vogue was like evil or something. Of course. So that's, that's in a way like the way I look at it because I think it's almost kind of like this idea that there's some kind of conflict between being interested in brands or fashion and being like political, I think is it just feels very irrelevant to me right now. Yeah, I also feel like maybe there's a, greater understanding that brands are like not the systemic problems and that you can kind of, it's the same, like, you know, this one cartoon of the medieval peasant criticizing society, like you can be critical of the system you're in and still kind of enjoy aspects of it, especially the kind of cultural things. So maybe it's just actually kind of more sophistication of understanding what brands do and how they perform. And maybe kids just get that more intuitively. So they don't seem like those are counterimposed. I do still think like, probably like anti-capitalism is bigger than ever, but it's just not expressed through like avoiding wearing Nikes like it was when I was a kid, you know? Yeah, it's, it's interesting because in a way it's like capitalism and consumerism must become two different things. Yeah, of- I mean, well, like luxury, we have the rise of, you know, luxury communism as, at least as a meme, if not an ideology. And of course, like there would be a place for luxury brands of some kind there. Maybe they wouldn't perform, perform the same thing, but... And financial yeah, capitalism know. has scaled up between the 90s. You thought you still understood how money worked or like how the market worked. And then something strange happened in the audience where like it jumped a few a few valences of magnitude. And you're like, obviously, I'm not going to solve capitalism by just reining in my like sad student budget consumerism. Right. You like there's a it's already check. that's like a neoliberal logic that exactly. it's up to you to, right, you know, right. your consumer habits, you know, are going to change the world. Right. This is another little bit of pivot, but it, 
I, the quote where it says, I've been a sneaker collector forever, but my stockpile of a thousand plus shoes that I keep at my friend's house feels valueless. Do I really need that many? <laughs> Which is a, from a reader, I guess. <laughs> it's just hilarious that this is what made them reassess that. My question to that is like, how do you know how the shoe resale market is doing now? Because I feel like that would be a very interesting indicator. It's interesting because it almost become eclipsed by certain factors. So for example, like the Michael Jordan documentary series that's on right now has had this like tremendous effect on the resale market. Of oh, wow. So it's like all of those Michael Jordan shoes are now like ballooning in value. But I actually say that resale is an interesting thing because it's almost not a great indicator of the economy because selling your stuff or buying things secondhand is almost like part of like a, like a more frugal way of being. So, but I don't have any direct numbers on that. Unfortunately, I will like in a couple of weeks though. We do, <laughs> we do work with like sneaker retailers to kind of report on these types of things. Too. What's the big, is it stock? Is it, what's it called? Stock X? Stock what's X. The, yeah. Yeah. Right. Okay. Yeah. I don't know. It's like with the, this whole consumerism thing, I think that it's just hard to say. It's, for example, that kid who has so many shoes, in a way, I think some of the stuff like Supreme or buying certain kinds of shoes, it was almost a little bit like what Pokemon was. <laughs> and so like, I feel like it almost gets enmeshed in this idea where it's like, oh, I have so many binders. I have like, it's like almost looking at your beanie babies and being like, what the fuck right. did I do? <laughs> yes. I mean, <laughs> it's like, it's like it could be that too. I mean, but if we're going to extrapolate on what the kids are thinking by looking at certain youth trends, I mean, I remember this video, Supreme had a My Bloody Valentine drop and someone made a compilation of all these like streetwear, like YouTubers, like streetwear reviewer, drop reviewer YouTubers who are all like, I don't really get what this is. Apparently, like it's a European rock band. Maybe kids from Europe will feel this. I don't feel it. Don't think it's really going to do well on the on the resale market. So cop or not, I would say no. But it's like the fact that they're building in the economy, the economics and values secondary of market. the re secondary yeah. resale market, and that in um, is part of their decision. I mean, talk about like a financialized hell. Like you have 19 year olds thinking about secondary markets and the, the, uh, whether the value will go up or down after purchase, like that's a pretty extreme embrace of both consumerism and capitalism. I mean, the kids have always traded baseball cards and coins and things like that since like, you know, forever. So they're like aware uh, on some level. No, that's it's definitely like more system, systematic. I yeah. feel like for sure. Yeah. It's, it's just more infrastructure. better entertaining, you know, it's cause like I, I had like, shitty Pokemon cards, but like I probably would have had more fun like actually selling real shoes online or something. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. It's like it's like so game I think it's so gamified, which is like I guess a big part of it. It's like also with like Fortnite and like how you know that whole economy like buying skins for Fortnite and like I feel like all these things coagulate together in a way. Totally. Ugh, I don't like it. I have a, I, have a <laughs> I don't like it either. <laughs> so Tom how do you get your macro view on culture? Like, do you like what heuristics do you use to balance like what's cool but also popularly interesting? And as like a sub question of that, how much do your personal networks versus your online networks come into play? I, I'm a really, I'm a huge luddite to be honest with you. Like, I've kind of operate parasitically with my coworkers and my my network. You know, like I don't. I don't even know where to find out things online. Like I don't know how to use Reddit. Um, I don't really read the news online. And so I sort of, 
I have like a group of maybe 50 or so e people who I email on a regular basis. I get pitch stuff all the time. And so I, I guess that I guess that, that's kind of my media diet or like lack of a media diet. It's, it's what trickles up to be worth talking about. And then two, I mean, you think like your big superpower of value, especially in this fashion magazine world is just your magic touch of like divining what is, <laughs> is cool and not. Um, I, I, know I, saying think yes. <laughs> like, I think of it almost more as like packaging, you know, cause it's like, I think but oftentimes everyone's talking about the same thing, but I think what I often enjoy doing is sort of looking at, you know, the data that we get in a setup like this and being able to understand topics that are engaging to people and then coming up with ways to like, you know, tell another story about that thing again. Where it gets really fun is not where you're just coming up with stuff, but like where you're getting that instant feedback from a huge group of people and you can kind of adapt to it. What, uh, what, what are the names of those? I know there's companies, I know Vice uses one. It was mentioned before, but like they actually do like natural language processing and sentiment analysis to get, understand what the trends and people and et cetera, that actually people on a mass scale are talking about. Do you get those, that data and those things? Like, I'm not sure exactly what they do, but we definitely do things like A-B testing. Like, mm -hmm. you'd be surprised how much information you get from just looking at A-B testing something like the thumbnail image on an article. And mm. like, things like such as like eye contact in the image have like huge effects or like black and white versus color, like all of those different kinds of things. Totally. And so, I mean, I don't know, it's weird. It's like, I've always, I think, and maybe this has to do with like the kind of, ethos of O32C, but it's like, there's almost kind of like a pleasure in like taking something that's maybe abstruse and then making it really popular or like finding the thing about it. That's like exciting to more people than its normal audience. And like, so that's, that's, I think where I, where I at least get off the most. Yeah. I mean, you're really great at that. I don't know when people also talk about like the value of like an art history degree, it's actually pattern recognition and learning these historical narratives and how to read images and to read sentiment and images. I think that it's like actually quite an important skill right now. Um, I have a question that I, I want to start asking, I think every one of our guests, but do you think your job could be automated and <laughs> how long, how long until it could be automated? Um, I feel like you could probably get my job done with a robot, but it would be like in a much less cute way. <laughs> <laughs> right. That's like you could probably be get like as much traffic to high sobriety as I get or more if I were a robot, but like it would look like shit. Right, right. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I, just, I just add the je ne sais quoi to like doing the same thing. I guess. Right, right. <laughs> Should we, uh, should we do a quick shoe review? Let's go rapid fire. Let's do, okay. Let's do rapid. Okay. So the first is from um, Hamzat, who has Yeezy model in general, but specifically these two. So at the top is like a white Neon Genesis Evangelion, like future croc one-piece molded shoe. And the bottom is some minimalist one-piece boot. I don't know what that is, though. So the below ones, I'm, I'm not super familiar with. The above ones I find very fascinating. They're, I think they're kind of modeled after this other shoe by Merrill called like the Hydro Mock, which is like a kind of like, it's sort of, sort of like an activewear croc made by this like hiking company like Merrill. It's almost like a modernist shoe. It's like a like an Italian futurist um, croc. <laughs> <laughs> um, Q 
Keeping on that tip, sort of, um, there are a lot of Birkenstocks, classic, classic Birkenstocks that showed up in our feed, including the good old natural, like hippie style. Yeah, the Boston, I think that one's The Boston, right. And so we have them in the classic Nubuck or whatever, and then also in the nice medical white leather. I think exposing your ankle slash heel has become like a big thing. There's something kind of like, it plays with femininity or leisureliness in a nice way. And I think Birkenstock is definitely a brand. We, we worked with them when I was at O32C to make a kind of like clog. And yeah, there's something just kind of timeless about Birkenstocks. Is there ever yeah. an inappropriate time to wear a Birkenstock? Um, Funeral. <laughs> maybe a like CPAC. What if like you if wore a pass as like a conservative? <laughs> maybe, like, they'll, they'll definitely think you're some kind of crunchy like Bernieite. <laughs> Boston, What's your take on it with Italian futuristic um, mountain sneakers? Uh, what's your take on La Sportiva? So I, I actually like I discovered La Sportiva because I had a meeting with Ralph Lauren once and he was wearing watermelon colored pink cable knit shirt, a green polo shirt under with the collar up and like drop crotch sweatpants and a pair of La Sportiva boots. Um, wow. And they looked really cool. And I was like, what kind of shoes are those? And he was like, they're called La Sportiva. Cool. <laughs> I have La Sportivas. Exactly. They, they, they do look both very like 90s rave and very technically oriented. I love shoes that kind of like convey the extremity of what they do. Mm. Are that like this red and yellow danger? And it's like, we're like, you know, it's kind of like, whee! like you're in action like even if you're not doing like I I love that I love those moments it's almost like they're in drag is what they do or something (laughs) that extra layer that's just totally true Uh, slides and socks this summer Um, I feel like the slides and socks is like past its moment Mm. I think and you know, uh, living in Berlin, I, I wouldn't, I don't know. I wear slides and socks at home all the time, but I still just think of them. I, they still just make me think of like jail or like gangbanger uncle. Yeah, or like or like I love this expression, like, like a hot couch. Like I feel like this is like the like a hot couch. Hot couch. Like, I love that expression too. Yeah, it's like it's like someone who has like is playing like a Sega Dreamcast and like with like bong water spilled on it. Like that's what, Definitely, that's the vibe I get when I see you. We, we actually we had you guys should have joined. We had an editor Zoom call about sandals, dad sandals, like a week ago. Um, I think. I was trying to push like jelly sandals, like the ones that like five-year-olds oh, wear. Yeah. Oh yeah, definitely. No one was on board. I was completely on an island with those. <laughs> but I think this Too kind soon. of like climbing sandal thing is is like a big like La Sportiva vibes, but the sandal version. Like I think Tivas, is but like more technical. Mm. I've been all over that for sure. Um, what about yeah. the very like Memphis yeah. group looking newer Jordans? I think they're having another moment. So I think, for example, like the Jordan 14 uh, is very much in the spotlight because of the Michael Jordan documentary out right now. It's interesting because I, I believe, and and I might be wrong here, but I believe that Tinker Hatfield, who designed those, like really regretted them because uh, they were like inspired by Jordan's car collection, which is such a like midlife crisis <laughs> idea. And so like they they're like they're these kind of like car Corvette inspired shoes and. I love that they're kind of coming back into style right now. 
There's also a question about your um, designer mask option. We, what's your go-to? Are you a 3 m Are you a, like a DIY cloth? Are you a throwaway surgical? What's your go-to option? So I, I do a product column like every quarter or so. And I, I almost included this, but then realized it was politically incorrect because of the PPE shortage. But <laughs> I really loved the, the 3M makes this, I think it's P99 or P100, but it, it's this kind of like, welder style mask that has two pink kind of foam filters on this each side of it and it looks so fucking cool and i have one and Dan whenever knows. i go to a hot zone i wear it i'm looking now that's definitely cool i don't, I don't see anyone wearing full-on gas mask yeah, here even like you there's like a cyber goth scene here and you'd think they'd be thriving but i haven't seen any of them out so oh true you know, yeah, those true. is like like you really need to give those to a doctor like like they cost like a thousand dollars after market now so i <laughs> really donate mine but i haven't yet i mean personally i think it's i like that wearing the real ppe is like edgy and a little bit antisocial now i think that's cool so i definitely am with you there like, <laughs> yes, wearing, Dan. <laughs> wearing, no 3m is like a, for, a forbidden brand and now you're like because you're taking you're like, a PPE from somebody else. Yeah, you're oh, right. taking. Yeah, it's like a self. It's a selfish gesture, but right. but they also are the coolest looking masks. They have a great logo. Yeah, it's true. 3M. It's the only one that isn't cringe. Like getting a unic. I mean, getting any kind of branded mask that isn't 3M. 3M should definitely cringe. break out like some streetwear after this. They could so easily. So yeah. good. Um, yeah, I mean, they always did like these. Uh, they made this jacket with Nike, like that was like hyper reflective. Oh right, because oh, yeah, they 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 are the ones that made the retro reflective substance. It's the three yeah. M stuff, right? Yeah. And Nike just like made it big, yeah. Um, but yeah, I think the P ninety nine or the P one hundred, I forget what it's called, is like P one hundred. I see, yeah. The it's the coolest looking mask in my opinion. My read, like especially reading your hype beast versus high snob piece, and and I see you kind of approach this stuff from a sort of systems thinking perspective. I mean, for me, I kind of hit like high levels in a couple different industries before kind of quickly stepping away from them. And I felt like I couldn't maintain sincerity after seeing like behind the curtain. It just, everything seems janky when you like peek behind or something. I wonder if you have ever have a issue maintaining sincerity, maybe in fashion or in magazines, have knowing so much of how it works and peeking behind the curtain or if what keeps you, you going, or, or if you just kind of you know how it works and you just enjoy it, so you just keep going with it, anyways. I feel like with with high snob in particular, I felt very at home, especially even when I wrote about it. Was something I observed was that there was almost this kind of fundamental honesty to it because this, the main subject matter of the website is like being obsessed with product, and so there was never this bait and switch where it's like. We're an art magazine, but like also like we're advertising this like bag and you're kind of pretending that they're somehow fluid because like Cindy Sherman designed the bag. Um, <laughs> so I think that like, I, I like how, and I, I talk about it too in the editor's letter of my first issue. It's like, it's a celebration of fact that like, I genuinely would like look at catalogs in the front of magazines and just nerd out about products and stuff. And there's something like kind of like almost invincible about that because it's like, you're not, it comes from a genuine place. But I think that, I don't know, for me, it's just I've never had so many expectations about, I, I feel like when people burn out of, of an industry, it's because they somehow expect it to be better than it is or to have more meaning than it does. Right. And yeah. I think um, I've never sought political validation from what I do. Now. And so I've never been disappointed, I guess. 
But maybe that's sad. Maybe that's sad. Um, <laughs> no, I think that's that's good self uh, self preservation. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I think the other thing, though, we wanted to ask was just, I mean, obviously, there's this this cottage industry explosion. The uh, in terms of media production, the uh, or content. I mean, there's the Patreon model, the individual micro producers who are kind of supported at a relatively really premium price by a caring micro audience who they target. Um, and then you have like hype beasts, like really large groups making bulk mass market content. And I feel like what's most difficult is sustaining something in the middle. And is that a right, correct read that like the middle is the hardest to sustain? And I feel like you've kind of worked in the middle space and been successful in it somewhat. And I mean, do you have a do you have a plan or an idea of how to make the middle work? Yeah, no, it's a good question. I feel like the, well, the big end is tough because in a way it's like you create, it's like you inherently don't have a very deep relationship with people in terms of engagement, you know? And that's why I think like podcasts are such an interesting media because, you know, let's say this podcast has like, I don't know, 10,000 followers or whatever. And another uh, like, you know, CNBC has like, you know, a hundred thousand people watching it or like, or, Hype Beast has like maybe however many millions of unique visitors a month, but it's like you guys are like living inside someone's head for like an hour every week or however often you do this podcast. And like, I think that hour is so much more than accidentally like going on an article about something for like two seconds and then leaving. You know, like a lot of sites that in the industry, like their average time on site is like 35 seconds or something. Right, <laughs> right. Like, you're almost like driving down the highway, just like passing it. Like it's like, it's almost kind of, so I, I don't know. I think that the big end of things, like I think you inherently have something that is so water. I mean, you've seen so many different things like just disappear off the face of the earth and like no one really cares. Like all these like websites, you know, in the kind of like online media 2.0 world that are sort of folding, like no one really misses them at all. Right. They never really yeah. connected with the community. They just sort of were there. Yeah. Like I'm not like, I don't like stay up at night wondering like where Bleacher Report is. Or, or, <laughs> right. Like, 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 I don't know. It's, like, it's kind of, I think that's so, like, I don't know what you guys do. You know, you, you have such a strong following. You can really, and you can monetize that in different ways. And I feel like creating a slightly more mass version of that, I think is like enough, is like a recipe that, is interesting to follow, like that middle path. I mean, needless to say, sounds like we should lean yeah. into the parasocial. The parasocial, right? That's our biggest. Uh, <laughs> yeah, exactly. I got one last question. Um, like the sneakers that like the streets are fucking with in New York. D- does that still operate outside of the blogosphere and whatever platforms are saying this or that is hot? Because I always feel like like what people are wearing in like Harlem or like the Bronx is like a, always particular and almost like a very local oriented hot shoe choice that probably still runs on sort of like high school net cool guy networks and like <laughs> whoever's like the older brother who's like streets famous. Yeah, I I couldn't agree with you more. I used to. So it was funny because even before I started at High Society. I started doing these reviews of shoes on the train um, called Six Train Shoes on my Instagram stories. And what's funny is also a lot of people think that I was like recruited to have my job now because of those like <laughs> shoe reviews, but I, I swear I wasn't. Um, but like, 
I, I love like quotidian fashion in that way because I feel like it's so, um, and something I love about New York is like there's almost this strange nobility of like having to look good no matter how busy or broke you are. Um, and so I feel like there's something really special about seeing shoes in the wild here because like clearly like you never see like a rare shoe like on the train. You always see like maybe a Jordan, but like the kind that you can buy at Foot Locker, but like it looks great and it like matches the person's hat. You know? Yeah. Like, yeah. Yeah, and like, and I also really like how shoes look when they're like fucked up and dirty too. Um, so that's another piece of it as well. I mean, right back in like Bobby Shmurda days, like all those guys were wearing G-Star jeans, <laughs> which is just such a random choice. Like no one was really fucking with them, but there's still these like local legendary brands or items that come out. Like remember a story a few years ago about kids who were getting killed for this particular jacket called the Biggie, I think. Oh my God. Yeah, the Marmot Biggie. Yeah. <laughs> and it's just like these local New York, like legendary coveted fashion items yeah. I think are so interested because I think still to this, I mean, that's what I guess that's what my, what my question was is that are there still these local like human network uh, enabled coveted fashion items in, in New York or has the internet totally flattened location i get the feeling that there still is you know because i feel like i still see that stuff you know and it's interesting because it was like the biggie was this jacket that was sold by paragon which is like this new york sporting goods store and became this like really coveted jacket that people were shooting each other for and stuff but then opening ceremony came out with their own version of it like a year ago but it just felt kind of like it, like missed the point. Yeah. It just, <laughs> like it was just sort of like, okay, why? Like it's not. Um, so yeah, I don't know. I feel like these kinds of like quotidian fashion tribe traditions are kind of they, they're just still around. I guess I feel like maybe it's just part of being a kid. Yeah. But anyway, I mean, I know you have to go, so we should sign off and we should thank you very much for spending your afternoon with us. I feel like in a lot of ways, I've always looked at you across masthead or whatever and been like fascinated with the decisions you've made and thought they were really smart in your adaptation to drastically changing media. But it's true. But anyway, I just want to say that. I just, I've always know, really, I've really, been really fascinated I mean, by I've, it. The admiration is mutual towards all three of you guys. So <laughs> No, seriously though, like I've known all of your work since before we even met, so it's it's nice to chat with all of you guys. Thank you. All right. All right. Thanks, <laughs> Thanks a lot, Tom. Awesome. All right. Have a good one. Thanks. Okay. Bye. See you later. <laughs> Bye. Thank you for listening to the New Models podcast, and thank you, Tom Betridge, for coming on the show. High Style, the spring issue of the High Snobiety magazine, is still available at the newsstand, and the fall issue will be out in September. Kunsthalle Zurich's exhibition Sommer des Zorgens is on view through August 30th. Visit kunsthallezurich.ch for more. There's also more to New Models. Check out our aggregator site, newmodels.io, and for access to all New Models content, including our patrons-only talk core show, Topsoil, as well as access to our Discord, join us at patreon.com slash newmodels. Thoughts and comments can be sent to desk at newmodels.io. That's all for now. See you next episode or in the streets. <laughs>